Uh, one of the unheralded heroes of last summer's Olympics in London was a guy named Mantio Mitchell. Anybody heard of him? Mantio Mitchell? Not one person. Nobody, nobody heard about him, but this is a great story. He was one of the strongest runners, uh, strongest sprinters in the United States, and as such, he was assigned the great honor of running the first lap of the 4x400 relay race. Uh, and he warmed up for usual uh, for the qualifying heat, something you know he had undoubtedly done thousands of times, both in practice and in competition, something that he'd gone through in his mind how many times uh, before he runs this race. But this qualifying heat would be entirely different than any race he had ever run because midway around the track, this first lap, Mitchell felt a pop and a sharp pain shoot down his leg. In fact, he had broken his left fibula right there in the middle of the race, right on the racetrack. Nevertheless, and maybe the reason you've heard of him, you haven't heard of him, is because he finished the race like nothing happened. If he would have stopped, we would have heard of him, I'm sure, but he didn't stop. In fact, he finished his leg of the race with a time of 46.1 seconds, which is only 1.2 seconds behind his personal best. And uh, honestly, that's about a minute faster than I could run it. Um, it yeah, that, that is pretty fast. Uh, but what he did, what Mitchell did, was overcome some almost impossible odds, just huge odds. He had to have felt the weight of the world on his shoulders when he broke his leg and felt this immense pain shooting down his leg. I mean, after all, the fate of the entire team was on his shoulders. The reputation of the United States running program, you know, the, the reputation that we have for producing uh, elite runners was at stake. Nobody, not one of us, not any commentator, nobody would have blamed him if he would have just fallen to the ground uh, holding his leg. Nobody would have blamed him for just simply stopping mid-race. It wouldn't have been you know, a, a cheap cop-out or anything like that. There would have been no controversy about why this guy stopped. I mean, who can blame somebody for stopping a race with a broken leg? But the baton had to be passed. There was a baton that had to get into the next guy's hands, and if he didn't do it, nobody could get out there and do it for him. Sheer determination led him to overcome an obstacle that would have caused the average person, and by the way, I, I group myself in that category, average person, it would have caused the average person to wither. But he went through. He did it. Obviously, he had to be replaced after this qualifying heat, and the Americans went on to win the silver medal. But nobody, you, I mean, I, I've never heard of anybody who would be more deserving of a silver medal than Mantillo Mitchell. His is an amazing story of overcoming seemingly impossible odds, all for the sake of passing on a baton. Now, Nehemiah has also overcome some serious odds in helping to restore the city of Jerusalem. First of all, uh, you know, he, he gets the news from his brother that Jerusalem's in shambles and the people are living in distress. And so he had to tactfully request permission to go down to Jerusalem to restore Jerusalem from King Artaxerxes. And that, that was no small task. Uh, even before he reached Jerusalem, he faced a group of people, uh, individuals who opposed the work of God that he had been called to do. Nevertheless, despite mockery, despite physical threats, uh, despite threats to his reputation and credibility, and despite the betrayal of at least some of his own countrymen who decided to side with the enemies, 
Nehemiah continued the work on the wall. He pressed on. Now, we know that he spent at least 12 years in the city of Jerusalem, restoring the city. Uh, and while we can't exactly be sure of all the things that he did over the course of 12 years, after all, I mean, what can you do in 12 years? Maddie turns 12 this month, and I, I think of all the things that I've done since she was born. I mean, you can do a lot of things over the course of 12 years. So we know that restoring uh, the gates and the wall that was at least the first thing that was on his plate. But to simply say that the completion of the wall was an amazing accomplishment would be a serious understatement because today we're going to see that the wall was completed in an amazingly short amount of time. Uh, but we're also going to see that Nehemiah has a proverbial baton to pass on. The truth of the matter is that not one of us is going to be here forever. Uh, if I'm here in 50 years, it, it'll be by the grace of God. I mean, 50 years is a long time. I'm 40 years old. I turned 41 this year. Uh, will I be around when I'm 91? Probably not. You know, the average life expectancy is nowhere near that. So I don't expect to be here in 50 years. But the mission that we've been given is still going to be here in 50 years. The mission that we've been given is still going to be here in 100 years. This mission, the great co-mission is one that has outlasted every single generation that has come and gone before it, and it will outlast our generation as well, unless Jesus returns within our lifetime. And if you look at the way uh, the world's going right now and the state of affairs, uh, you wouldn't be too surprised if Jesus did come back, but we don't know. All we can do is watch and pray for his return. But given the mission that's at hand, given what's at stake here, it's important that we grasp the biblical principle of succession that we find here in our study of Nehemiah in order that the next generation may continue in this vital work. First, though, we're going to see that the wall is completed against overwhelming odds. So if you've got your Bibles open, we're going to start with Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 15. Here we read, So the wall was completed on the 25th of the month Elul in 52 days. Again, Nehemiah has spent 12 years, he, you know, it, he spends 12 years restoring the city of Jerusalem, but it was important that the wall be completed first and that it be completed quickly because without the wall as this primary line of defense, remember this is the first line of defense. If somebody wants to get into the city, they got to deal with the wall first. So the wall needs to go up first, uh, but without the wall, the enemies of the Jews would have been, uh, you know, easily to easily able to enter into the city and disrupt any further progress in restoring the city. Further, the people had felt the heat of uh, the, the enemy breathing down their necks. So that was the news that Nehemiah got back in, in chapter 1. And so they were living in a constant state of fear. And this helps explain why, uh, as we learned in the first lesson of our study, only about 2% of the Jews returned to Jerusalem once they were allowed to return to restore the city. Uh, but given the fact that the wall was an enormous undertaking, I mean, it was between a mile and a half and two miles. I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to build a wall that big. That doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but it needed to be done. Uh, and it was enormous. And given the size, uh, you know, it's astounding that the wall was ever completed to begin with. But to finish this enormous wall in just 52 days is incredible. It's, it's miraculous. It's something that they could only do by the grace of God, to build a wall that long uh, with the enemy breathing down their, their necks at the same time. I mean, you can almost see the excitement that Nehemiah has here as he reports 
that they did it in 52 days. He, he's excited. Um, but remember that Nehemiah received news of the conditions of Jerusalem in the winter. Sometime in, in our months of uh, November, December, um, on our calendars, he received permission to go to Jerusalem in our month of April. Uh, and we know, based on this date here, that his work was completed on September 21st, which means it started on August 1st, uh, if you count the days back. That is amazingly fast. Within nine months... Nine months, they've got the wall set around uh, Jerusalem. They've got it up. But look at how the enemies of the Jews respond to this. Verse 16. When all of our enemies heard of it and all the nations surrounding us saw it, they lost their confidence, for they recognized that this work had been accomplished with the help of our God. Nehemiah's success was so incredible, so astounding, it even caused his enemies to lose confidence. They were like a tire that gets slashed and just like instantly deflates when they see that this wall was completed so fast. They knew that it was beyond incredible that the wall could be completed as quickly and as efficiently as it was, and that caused them to look beyond the work. It caused them to look beyond the wall at what, would, what could possibly cause a wall to go up that fast. What was the driving force behind that wall? And they saw it was God. God's the only explanation for how that could be done so quickly. And you know what? This is exactly how church is supposed to work. This is exactly how ministry is supposed to work. When the world looks in at us from the outside, our works, what we're doing, what we're about, should testify to the greatness of God. See, when they, when they look in and they see lives being transformed. They see lives changing. They see people who normally wouldn't, you know, wouldn't sit next to each other, wouldn't like each other maybe, wouldn't love each other, and they see that that's going on within church walls. Breaking all social barriers, the greatness of God is evident even to our enemies. And what I love about this is that while Nehemiah is, you know, he's obviously excited. You know, who wouldn't be excited about building a wall that fast? If nothing else, hey, let's get out of the heat. We don't have to deal with the heat that much longer. But, you know, while he's excited about this accomplishment, he's not boastful and he's not prideful. He's not giving himself any credit. He's not giving himself any glory. I mean, the temptation to brag, at least a little bit, had to be there. And it had to be, you know, pretty strong. But this is one of the things that made Nehemiah such a great uh, great leader in uh, renewing Jerusalem, restoring Jerusalem. He gave all the credit and all the glory to God. Now, it's a sad thing to note that a lot of Christian leaders out there, they'll, they'll do all the right things on the way to the top, you know, as they're building their ministry. But, you know, they'll, they'll pray, you know, they, they, they study scripture all the time. They keep themselves humble in the sight of the Lord. And, they, you know, they, their focus of the ministry is completely on Jesus. But then once they reach the pinnacle, and we see this so many times, once they reach the pinnacle, suddenly their ministry switches gears and it becomes more about the pastor than it is about Jesus and the message. John Stott, who has to be counted as one of the, one of the greatest uh, pastors and greatest Christian writers of the 20th century, he said this. Uh, go ahead and put the next quote up, Caleb. He said, the chief occupational hazard of leadership is pride. The chief occupational hazard of leadership is pride. I was watching one very well-known, somebody you guys have 
Uh, I, I would say you guys have probably heard of this guy, very respected church leader, answering uh, questions. He was kind of doing a Q&A at the end of a conference session, and the question of succession came up. And somebody asked him basically, you know, what will happen, Pastor, if, if you were to die in a car accident tomorrow or, or have a heart attack uh, tomorrow, who, who would take over at your church? Do, do you have a replacement? Do you have a successor? And the guy was, was stunned. Uh, he kind of joked around a little bit, you know, made a, made a couple comments, stumbling over his words, uh, looking for an answer because he knew that he should have one. He knew. I mean, this guy is, is strong enough in his faith, you know, well-grounded enough. He knows that there's supposed to be a successor. But his response was basically, you know, I, I don't know. I haven't given it much thought, honestly. We'll come back to this before we're done today, so, so keep this on the back burner. But know uh, that the temptation to make the ministry about ourselves, any ministry that we're in charge of, about ourselves, is, is very, very strong. Chief occupational hazard, according to John Stott. Nehemiah never fell to this temptation, by the way. He never fell to the temptation to make his work, his ministry, all about himself. And just as importantly, he kept his focus in the midst of his success. It's, it's hard. When you're successful, it's hard to keep your focus. But he kept his focus, which prevented him from becoming blind to his ongoing struggles and his ongoing problems. In other words, he didn't allow himself to believe that his success made him bigger than he was. It, he didn't allow his success to, to make him feel invincible. And man, we, we love feeling invincible, right? You know, I mean, if you read about uh, teenage boys and, and their hormones, uh, you know, they, they get this, this sense of invincibility, and that's why, you know, uh, teenage boys tend to make bad decisions. I, I'm speaking for myself, by the way, first and foremost, made some really bad decisions. Why? Because I felt invincible, and there's, you know, this hormonal rush that comes in during the teen years that makes guys feel invincible, and we love to feel invincible, and often it's so easy for that tendency to feel invincible, to be fed by success. But Nehemiah's problem, he's successful, but his problems aren't gone, and the enemy isn't finished. We continue in verses 17 and 18, reading, Also in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah. Remember, Tobiah's the bad guy. He's been teaming up with Sambalot and uh, Geshem and these Arab leaders who, who hate the Jews. Uh, also, in, in those days, many letters went from the nobles of Judah to Tobiah, and Tobiah's letters came to them. For many in Judah were bound by oath to him because he was the son-in-law of Shechaniah, the son of Era, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshu, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah. I hope I did that okay. There's a lot of <laughs> weird names in there. Now you can see why I didn't have, uh, yeah, have us read it at the beginning of the service today. Uh, but what we see here is that Tobiah married into a Jewish family. He married uh, one of the, the Jewish women living in Jerusalem, a woman who probably came from a powerful family, a wealthy family, possibly one of those wealthy families that have been taking advantage of the poor people in the community just a couple chapters back. And that, the fact that he married into this Jewish family, gave him insider status, and it gave him access to the city and to the people. It gave him influence. The people had to view and treat him as one of their own. And so Tobiah looks to take advantage of that relationship, knowing that many of the people were now bound by oath. 
to him. Now, these are obviously people, this era, this whole house, this whole wealthy house. These are obviously people whose hearts had not been changed by the charges of injustice that were publicly raised against them a couple chapters back. His actions, their actions of committing this injustice may have changed, but their intentions did not. And that is power. That's what they wanted. That's why they were doing what they were doing, and that's why they're doing what they're doing here. Era still sought power and control, even if it meant violating God's instructions. And the result of this marriage is going to be ongoing problems for Nehemiah. Verse 19, we read, Moreover, they were speaking about his good deeds in my presence. Talking about Tobiah, his good deeds in my presence, and reported my words to him. Then Tobiah sent letters to frighten me. This is really just a great reminder for us, for every single one of us. Don't ever forget that we have an enemy, a real enemy, who is unrelenting in his attacks on us. He might stop. It might seem like he's stopping for a season, but he's just planning his next move. Our struggle, our, our spiritual battle against him will not end during the course of this lifetime. I mean, you can talk to the, the oldest and the wisest and, and the purest pastors you can find, and not one of them will tell you that the constant battles with the enemy of God came to an end at some point. None of them will ever say, oh, you know, yeah, during the first 30 years of my ministry, it was pretty strong, but then it was like he went away. Nobody, nobody will ever say that. Now, that's just the nature of life, that the struggle is ongoing. And if the battle ever seems like it's getting easier, if the battle ever seems like it's getting less frequent, we need to at least consider the possibility that the enemy is winning, that the enemy is oppressing us, and that we are too blind to even Realize it if it seems like the attacks are letting up. See, God desires to bless us. He desires for us to draw near to him, and he wants to bless us abundantly. But the battle against the flesh, the battle against the world, will continue until the Lord brings us home. And there are a variety of ways that these battles will will take place. I mean, if you talk to 10 different people, you're going to get 10 different ways that they're being attacked. That's just the way it is, and it's going to continue until the Lord brings us home. The world, and this is kind of funny if you think about it, this is how different we're supposed to be from the world. The world wants to rest and relax in their later years. They call that retirement, but that's not how it works with this battle with the enemy. You know, our work, our calling doesn't suddenly lessen as soon as we qualify for Social Security. It's still there. It's still there, and that's why you have guys like Howard Hendricks, uh, who just passed away last month or maybe the month before, you know, he was 90-something years old, and he's still a seminary professor. Why? Because he's still got something to contribute to the battle. Chuck Swindoll, how many years has he been preaching? A long time. He's been in, in, behind the pulpit a long time. But he's still gifted. He's still got the calling. It doesn't go away. It doesn't lessen with age. And now we come to the seventh chapter uh, of the book of Nehemiah. And if you glance down at your Bibles, you see that this chapter has... 73 verses, and a whole bunch of those uh, verses contain names that are really difficult to pronounce. No need to panic. We're not going to read uh, verse by verse. Glad to, glad to hear that, right? Um, it's very easy for us to lose our way 
in a chapter like this. And, you know, we could, we could spend the rest of the service just reading, uh, you know, the verses here and all these names, trying to pronounce all these names here. But, you know, I don't want us to get lost uh, in this chapter. It might seem, uh, you know, more difficult to find a valid application or a principle to live by when we're confronted by a chapter like this, but it's there. Um, if you guys like watching uh, survival shows, Man versus Wild and uh, Man, Woman, Wild, that's a great one, a married couple going out and taking on the wilderness together, or uh, what's the one, that there's the, the hippie and the, and the army survivalist, you know, they go out there and, and survive. I love all those shows and I love watching them. So if, you've, if you watch those uh, like I do, you probably know how people are trained to react if they are lost in the wilderness. What they do is they find, the first thing they do, they find a high point, what's called a vantage point, uh, whether that's a, a tree sometimes uh, or a hill or a mountain. Uh, they get up as high as they can in order to survey the landscape in an attempt to figure out uh, which direction they should be headed, places where they can rest, places where they can find food and water, and so on. But what we find when we do the same thing with a chapter like this, instead of you know, being lost in the trees, climbing a tree and looking around, what we do when we zoom out like this uh, and focus on the big picture rather, rather than the, the minute details that are in here is that Nehemiah is continuing his work in Jerusalem by appointing his successors, by passing on the proverbial baton. So we continue in chapter 7. Uh, we'll read verses 1 to 3. Uh, no tough names, n- not too tough in here anyway. Uh, now when the wall was rebuilt, and I had set up the doors, and the gatekeepers, and the singers, and the Levites were appointed, then I put Hanani, my brother, and Hananiah, the commander of the fortress, in charge of Jerusalem, for he was a faithful man, and feared God more than many. Then I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they are standing guard, let them shut and bolt the doors. Also appoint guards from the inhabitants of Jerusalem, each at his post and each in front of his own house. See, even though the the city is somewhat secure, the the, the wall is completed, uh, the city is somewhat secure, no city is ever completely secure secure against any and all attacks. It can still happen. I mean, Jerusalem fell the first time and they had the wall up. It could happen again. The wall isn't a guarantee. It just makes it tougher for the enemy. Uh, So Nehemiah realizes that even though the walls are up, they still have people who hate their guts. They still have people who don't want to see the restoration of God's dwelling place. They still have people who would love to see them fall and take them right back into Captivity. You see, typically, a city would, gate, uh, would open the gates up at sunrise. As soon as there was enough light out to identify somebody, the gates would be opened. Uh, but Nehemiah gives specific instructions here not to open the gates until it gets hot outside. That's a pretty relative statement. You know, what, what, you know what's hot? What constitutes hot? Well, the, the guards would be the judge of that. But it's not hot when the sun first comes up. It's still got the, the coolness of night. And so maybe that's another hour, maybe it's another two hours, but he instructs them to to keep the gates closed until it gets hot outside. And this will help to protect the city by limiting just a little bit more uh, access to the city. There is a lot of wisdom here, a lot of wisdom in never letting our guard down against the enemy, no matter how safe we might feel. How many times... In the news, in the media, you know, TV, how many times do we see 
accomplished and established leaders stumble? How many times do they fall into temptation? Well into their ministry. You know, at the point where they, they should know better. They do know better. But they fall. How many times do we see that? And every time we see that, I guarantee you, it's because they got to the point where they were comfortable and they felt invincible. And so what did they do? They let their guard down against the enemy. They convinced themselves, I'm I'm above and beyond that. It's not going to happen to me. And Nehemiah is wise to appoint two trustworthy men to help ensure the safety of the city. Hananiah and Hananiah. You see, a leader can try to do everything by themselves. And that's not too difficult when there aren't a lot of things to be done. Who, who needed to be in charge of you know, building the wall? You, know, you only need one guy to, to really you know, appoint people and you know, get things moving and everything and oversee the whole project. You don't need too many guys. But you know, uh, as more and more things uh, pile up, as there, are more, as there are more and more responsibilities, you need to appoint people to help with the work. Uh, and with Nehemiah's life constantly in danger, the question is, what if I die tomorrow? What if they get me tomorrow? And so he appoints two guys uh, to take his place. Rather than give the enemy an opening like that, Nehemiah safeguards against the possibility so that even if he were to die five minutes after they were appointed, the protection, the physical protection of the city would be taken care of. The rest of this chapter is going to deal with the people who are living within the walls of Jerusalem. Who's allowed to live within the walls of Jerusalem and his plan to preserve their doctrinal integrity. And when I'm talking about doctrinal integrity, I mean that he recognized the need of the people to not just have spiritual nourishment, but to have proper spiritual protection and nourishment as well. Um, So we continue reading in verses 4 and 5. Now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. Then my God put it in my heart to assemble the nobles, the officials, and the people to be enrolled by genealogies. Then I found the book of the genealogy of those who came up first, in which I found the following record. Uh, and we'll just go ahead and stop there. We don't, the record is what we read for the next uh, several dozen uh, uh, verses here. Between verses 6 and 60, we have actually a, a repetition um, of the same list of names that you would find if you were to read through the book of Ezra. Uh, these are the people who returned to Jerusalem, the 2% who returned to Jerusalem uh, in the book of Ezra. And so by listing all these names, Nehemiah is not only giving these people credit for uh, their contributions toward the work in the city, uh, he's also giving them the responsibility of carrying on what he, what Nehemiah, had begun. He's passing the baton onto these people. These people belong here. These people have worked here. These people will continue to work here. And this genealogical record serves to prove uh, it's, it's evidence of the Jewish ancestry of the people in the city so that if there's any question about whether they're supposed to be there or not, whether they're supposed to be living there or not, you know, all, all they have to do is look at this list. You know, is so-and-so on there? Okay, you're, you're one of his sons? Okay, you're, you're good. You can live here. Uh, so it lays all the questions about their identity and their ancestry, their Jewish heritage, to rest. So between here and verse 60, we find out who's allowed to live within the city. Then we reach verse, uh, verse 61, and Nehemiah lists off some names of some people whose ancestry was in question. 
these are people who didn't have, who, who, who weren't on the original list that we find in the book of Ezra, and they really have no solid proof uh, they, you know, come from a particular, you know, lineage of the Jews. They have no proof or record of their ancestry. So we read in verses 61 and 62, These were they who came up from Tel-Malah, Tel-Harshah, Cherub, Adon, and Imer. But they, did, but they could not show their father's houses or their descendants, whether they were of Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, the sons of Nakoda. 642, and of course, 642 refers to the number of people that he's talking about. Now, because they had, these people had no evidence one way or another regarding their, their ancestry or their, their Jewish heritage, they were forced to live outside of the city walls. And you'll note that even the sons of Tobiah are named here. And we just learned that Tobiah married into a Jewish family. But what this tells us is that it's entirely possible. Uh, maybe even seems likely that he had many wives, uh, that, that he had many children from different wives. And so these sons weren't from a Jewish woman's womb. Uh, but now Nehemiah moves on to some of the leaders whose ancestry was in question. We read in verses 63 and 64, Of the priests, the sons of Hobiah, the sons of Hakaz, the sons of Barzillai, who took a wife of the daughters of Barzillai, the Gileadite, and was named after them. These searched among their ancestral registration, but it could not be located. Therefore, they were considered unclean and were excluded from the priesthood. See, the priests, it wasn't just, hey, you know, I feel like being a priest. I feel like this is my calling in life. For the Jews, they had to come from a very specific lineage, and that is, of course, the Levites. Uh, these men in particular that Nehemiah is talking about, these men could offer no solid proof of their Levitical heritage. Maybe they were Levites. They just couldn't prove it. Maybe they weren't. And they were just lying. You know, we, we don't know. Even Nehemiah doesn't seem to know. He doesn't offer you know, solid proof one way or the other. But the fact that there's uncertainty about their credibility, about their ancestry, about their eligibility to lead, just the uncertainty alone is, a reason, is enough reason for him to prevent um, these people from serving because they don't want to corrupt. They don't want to make the Levitical line of priests unclean by allowing outsiders in. But there's a real danger. The, 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 the application here is that there is a real danger in appointing spiritual leadership. There are so many people out there who feel like they would fit the bill, but it's not as much because they want to serve God as it is because they want the power. They want the influence. I'm not saying that every pastor out there is like that. In fact, I would say most pastors aren't, but there are a lot of people out there who think, I could do this, and they couldn't. They, they want it for the wrong reasons. You know, I've, I've tried to serve under such people before, and I can tell you it is incredibly difficult, if not uh, practically impossible. Uh, when Christina and I first moved to North Carolina for me to go to seminary, we spent a lot of time just looking for a, a good church to go to, uh, and, and we thought we found one. It was a, a nice little church. The people were friendly, and uh, I, knew, I knew somebody in there from, uh, from seminary. And so we, uh, we became members of this, at this church, and um, nobody was leading the youth. 
uh, nobody, and, and there were uh, there were youth in the church, and so I volunteered to lead the youth. But I quickly found out why nobody was leading the youth. It was because it was virtually an impossible task because the pastor would not put a ministry in the hands of somebody else. He w- he wasn't comfortable uh, putting any aspect of ministry into another person's hands. In fact, he even insisted on being at the center of leading the women's ministry. They couldn't have a women's Bible study without him there. I, I'm not kidding. I, I, I couldn't even make this kind of stuff up. And it, you know, as the um, as the church grew, the pastor became more and more controlling, just tightening his grip on every ministry in the church. And in fact, he handpicked his elders. His elders weren't picked by the congregation; they were handpicked by him. Oh, and he removed one of his elders from their position when they told him no about something once. Danger. All this guy was about was power. We, we came to realize that. Um, as a project for, uh, for one of my seminary classes, we had to do a report on a church. Uh, and so I, I chose this church because at that point, you know, we, were, we had one foot out the door. We, I mean, we were getting ready to leave. We were, we were getting frustrated by the pastor being in the middle of absolutely everything and, and just the way that he was um, getting mad at people, basically, when, when they wouldn't go his way. Um, and the, re- the report had to do with uh, how responsibilities were distributed, how, how the responsibilities of the church were handled, who did what, etc. And when I presented the fact that the pastor was the one who was at the center of absolutely everything and basically you know, t- told in this report you know, what kind of stuff I had seen, I remember my professor's response very clearly. He said, that church will be dead in five years. Mark my words. And... Sure enough, um, five years later almost. It was, it was a little bit more than five years, maybe a couple months, so he's obviously not a prophet, but he was smart enough to see what was going on here. And sure enough, uh, five years later, the church closed its, doors. We, uh, closed its doors. We left the church as soon as my, my professor said that, and he, and he explained to me, you know, this is why this doesn't work. This is why this doesn't work. It just doesn't work with one person trying to micromanage every aspect of ministry, not appointing anybody else to do any aspect of ministry. And this is the danger of having the wrong types of people in charge with the wrong intentions. But there's something even more dangerous than having the wrong people in charge. Because God can do his work through the wrong people. He can do his work through people who are doing stuff for the wrong reasons. The more dangerous thing than having the wrong person in charge is failing to pass the baton, not training up disciples to do the work of ministry. You see, as as you read the Bible from front cover to back cover, you can't miss that there is a very, very clear pattern of succession, uh, discipleship, having somebody follow in somebody else's footsteps. Who did Moses have? Joshua. Joshua followed in in Moses' footsteps leading the country. Elijah had... Elisha, right? David had Solomon. Jesus had his disciples. Paul had Timothy, right? These guys all have this, established this pattern of succession. You see, what happens is, you know, when we don't have a plan of succession, it becomes very easy for us to adapt this mindset that God needs us, specifically me. God needs me for his work to be done. You know, uh, I am the most important person in the ministry because nobody will be there to do it if I don't do it. It's 
really easy to fall into that mindset. And that's why, by the way, for years, uh, I have constantly tried to recruit fellow leaders and teachers uh, for the podcasting ministry, for example. If you, if you go onto the podcasting website, uh, you'll see that there are five or six other guys who have done podcasts uh, besides me because I don't want to make it just about my teaching, just about me. But if you look at Scripture, you will find one glaring example of a leader who failed in this principle. He failed to train up someone to follow in his footsteps. I'm talking about Joshua. Joshua followed, uh, of course, in the footsteps of Moses. He was trained up and followed uh, behind Moses as the spiritual leader of God's people when Moses died. But when Moses died, see, see, Joshua was... He knew what he was doing. The, the baton was just successfully passed on to him. So he, this was a fantastic successor. Joshua was a godly man. He loved the Lord. Uh, but what about when Joshua died? Look at what we read in Judges. Judges chapter 2, verses 7 to 9. We read, The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the, uh, the days of the elders who survived Joshua, who had seen all the great work of the Lord, which he had done for Israel. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the territory of his inheritance in Timnath-Erez, in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaash. You see, this was a generation of people who, who we, we see here, they loved and they served the Lord because they had a solid spiritual leader, someone to, prevent, uh, to, to preserve and protect their, uh, their doctrinal integrity, if you will, somebody to keep them on track. They served the Lord. And because they served the Lord, they saw all these great things that the Lord did for the nation of Israel. But then Joshua died. Then Joshua died, and, and who was going to follow in his footsteps? Who had he trained to follow after him when he died? Now, I think it's entirely possible, maybe it's likely, that Joshua thought that he was going to live a lot longer than 110 years. Can you imagine thinking, oh, you know, I'll, I'll outlast 110 years, no problem. Uh, but, you know, the, if you look at the average lifespan of his ancestors, you know, you had people living uh, several hundred years. So, you know, that wasn't unheard of for his ancestors. But that was before the introduction of the law. You might wonder, you know, why, why is it that, you know, people lived several hundred years back in, you know, the, the Old Testament, at the beginning of the Old Testament, and, you know, these days, you know, the average lifespan is, what, like 80 years? And so you might think, well, you know, maybe they just didn't know how to count years. No. This was before the introduction of the law of Moses. As soon as the law of Moses was introduced, the average number of years that a person would live took a nosedive. Paul writes in Romans chapter 7, verse 5, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions, which were aroused by the law, were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. You see, there's a correlation between the introduction of the law and the average person's lifespan. So maybe Joshua thought that he had a lot longer to live, whatever the case. You know, whatever his reason may have been, we, we don't know. But whatever the reason was, he didn't train up anybody to follow in his footsteps. And what was the result? We continue in uh, Judges chapter 2, verses 10 to 13. All that generation also were gathered to their fathers. Talking about the end of Joshua's generation. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord, 
nor yet the work which he had done for Israel. Then the sons of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods from among the gods of the peoples who were around them and bowed themselves down to them. Thus they provoked the Lord to anger. So they forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroth. Now the question that you might be asking is what is going on here? Why is there such a disconnect between these two generations? Listen, there's always, always a disconnect between generations if, if there's not an intentional effort on the older generation to work against it, to prevent it from happening. Uh, Because young people, as we all know, they know everything. And they forget it by the time that they're 35 or so. And by that time, there's another generation coming up behind them uh, in full swing. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, of course. But what happened here is that the younger generation wasn't tended to, wasn't prepared, wasn't ministered to by the older generation. The older generation served God, but they never taught the following generation the joy of service to the Lord. What we see here is that the older generation saw God work. They saw what God could do because they served Him. But the younger generation apparently never got trained up in serving the Lord. They never had this opportunity to serve, and so they never saw what the Lord could do. They never saw God's work firsthand. You see, there's, there's this tendency when we're serving God to get to the point where we simply want to maintain things the way that we've always done them. And, you know, I'm, I'm capable of doing this, so, you know, I don't need to train up anybody else. It's really easy for us to slip into that mindset, but God's work has never, never been about maintaining. Thankfully, he hasn't just maintained me. Thankfully, he hasn't just maintained any of us. He's working in us. He's transforming us. And that's what his work is always about. It's about transforming lives. Institutional maintenance creates traditions that can very easily appear like closed doors to the following generation. And this is where it's important to recognize, uh, by the way, the difference between two, two very important words, form and function. Form and, and function. For example, uh, you know, as a church, we want to have worship music. That's a function. That's something that we don't want to, uh, to get rid of. But the way that we play worship music is a form. Uh, you know, 150 years ago, you know, you'd, you'd hear it on a piano. 100 years ago, maybe on, on a pipe organ. Uh, but, you know, as things, as things change, we change the form without disposing of the function. Um, And that's an important distinction because we have to maintain the functions, but we have to be willing to let the forms change. With preaching, we maintain the message, that's that's the function, but we might want to change the method, that's the form. Uh, That's what podcasts are. It's a new form of the same old message. See, forms will differ from one generation to the next, and thus it's important that a church adapt for the sake of reaching the next generation. And by the way, that's exactly why uh, I'm helping to train somebody up to play bass. Uh, You know, I I love leading worship and everything, but I don't want to do it forever because, uh, you know, I've already got all these things that I can do. Can I pass that responsibility on to somebody else? Absolutely. And it would be easy enough. So I'm I'm helping somebody learn how to play bass. See, I'm, I'm, I'm very concerned 
for the next generation. I am really worried about the next generation, legitimately worried, because what we see here in Judges is that it takes missing one generation, and you have years of disastrous results that follow if you fail to reach just one generation. That's all it takes to mess things up for our grandchildren and for our grandchildren's grandchildren is to miss one generation. The statistics, like I showed you guys here at the beginning of the service, the statistics for kids in America leaving the church are staggering. 75% will leave the church by the time they graduate high school. Of the remaining 25%, half of those people will leave the church before the end of their first year in college. We are facing a very serious uphill battle. What we're seeing is that for the past 100 years, the church has really seriously struggled to pass on the baton. There's been a serious struggle. See, a couple hundred years ago, you didn't have that kind of statistic. It wasn't anywhere near that. But you didn't have all these other gods in the culture that people were being pulled away to. Now, we've got secular humanism, atheism, you know, new age, you name it. There are so many things that our kids can be pulled away by and have their faith swept right out from underneath their feet. We're facing a serious uphill battle to keep them engaged in the church and active, believing, uh, active in their faith. And so it's crucial that we do more than simply maintain the institution. You know, it's not, it, we love where we are right now. I love where we are right now, but it's not just about right now. What about five years from now? What about 10 years from now? What about 50 years from now? Is this church still going to be here? I mean, you know, I, I hope so. My, my, my prayer is, God, please uh, bless and, and prosper this church so that we can uh, be around in 50 years. But, you know, that, that's where we've got to be thinking, not just, not just here. You know, we can't just have our, our, our eyes focused on the here and now. You know, but, you know, that's, that's where we, we tend to think. That's where the temptation to think is. But we've got to be looking further down the road. This generation that Joshua led, they weren't thinking 50 years down the road. They had their eyes down and they were looking at today and today only. See, tradition it is not a bad thing. Tradition is not necessarily a bad thing. In fact, I would say I, there are a lot of traditions that I, uh, that I am completely in support of and they are a very good thing. The thing that we have to be on guard against is what we call, uh, in an idiom, we call them sacred cows, we have to be on guard against sacred cow. A sacred cow is basically a figure of speech that refers to any tradition, custom, uh, preference, uh, method uh, that we refuse to get rid of, not because it's explicitly instructed in Scripture and not because we, we, we feel like we need it, but just because we like it so much that we don't want to let go of it. That's called a sacred cow, and it very easily turns into a serious, serious form of idolatry. It's been said, by the way, that sacred cows make delicious cheeseburgers. Um, you know, I, I think, you know, looking at our church and where we are right now, we are right on track. We're on the right track here at Linwood Evangelical Free Church, and I have no question about that. I have, I've told you guys before, I have never, ever seen a church uh, have three generations of worship music represented in every single service the way it is here. And I think that is such an amazing and beautiful thing. You know, when I, when I tell people about our church, that is the first thing 
that I tell them. We're a multi-generational church, and in fact, you can hear three generations of worship music represented every single service. And some of them, uh, particularly the, the older generation, they see the beauty in that. They see how amazing it is that a church can do that. So some of them will get it, some of them don't. The ones who don't, they'll get it someday when you know, they want to sing Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin songs in church and the younger generation will say, oh, that stuff is so old. And you know the, the, what the people who want to hear Matt Redman and Chris Tomlin will say? Oh, but there's such good theology in that music. You know, <laughs> you know there's, there's always that temptation, but at a, lot of, at a lot of churches, you know, we've all heard stories about what happens when you try to introduce just two genres of worship music. We all know what happens. We've all heard the stories. Church splits. Church splits that ensue. Let me make, let me make this very clear. Church splits that ensue over worship music aren't caused by worship music. They're caused by idolatry. They're caused by idolatry. And maybe, if I can be so bold to say this, maybe they're caused by a greater love for tradition than for God and lost people. I could be wrong about that. And I I hope I am wrong about that. But that is what the evidence seems to suggest. That they're not willing to look at a different form, not function, a different form for the sake of the next generation. And again, that's something we do here that I, I absolutely love. So I leave you today with just two questions. What has God gifted you to do? What has he called you to do to reach and serve this next generation? And who can you train up to follow in your footsteps to reach the next generation? Who's going to follow after you? You know, just like Mantillo Mitchell, you know, we, we, can, we can sit here and we can come up with excuses all day. And people do it all the time. Come up with excuses all day for not passing on the baton. But it's not an option. There's too much at stake. There's no success without a successor. Some will say success without a successor is failure. There's got to be a successor. That's why Nehemiah appointed and trained up people to follow after him. His work and his ministry wasn't about him. It wasn't about Nehemiah. It was about glorifying God. It was about honoring and glorifying the Lord. And if our ministry is to have the same goal, we have to take the same principle, this principle of succession, very seriously, both in our church and in our homes. Because the next generation and the generation after that and the generation after that, they matter. And it depends on our succession to the next generation. Let's pray. God, right now, I just want to pray for the next generation and the struggles that they have and the the variety of options, religious options that they face. And and Lord, just the, the rate at which people, kids, are leaving our churches. Many of us know people who've walked away after high school. And so, Lord, we we pray that you would bring them back. But, Lord, uh, we do want to pray for this next generation, that you would raise up leaders, but also that we would be obedient in training up successors, 
training up people to lead after we're gone. Lord, we take your, we take your word seriously. And we see the consequences of disobedience in this aspect, in this field, in this principle. And so, Lord, we pray for people to be trained up for the next generation, but also, Lord, help us to do so wisely and successfully. Lord, we know that without you at the center of it, it won't happen. So we pray, Lord, for you to be in the center of it all, guiding us and teaching us, helping us to teach the next generation to do the same thing that every generation has done before us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us so much. Thank you for making us your own, even though we didn't deserve it. We love you, and we live you. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today. And keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.